This is the Product Management Leaders Podcast, in which you hear from some of the top PM leaders about their real-world strategies and tactics for building world-class products. It's sponsored by Vox Implant, the leading serverless communications platform and no-code drag-and-drop contact center solution. Vox Implant enables product leaders and developers to integrate communications into their products, such as embedding voice, video, SMS, in-app chat, and natural language processing. Join over 30,000 businesses trusting Vox Implant. Now let's jump into the show. Hey, it's Grant Duncan, your host. I'm talking with Bernard Desarnot, VP of Product at PandaDoc, a Series B startup with over 500 employees. Bernard has a wealth of experience being a former SVP of product and marketing, a co-founder and an advisor. Let's get started. Hey, Bernard, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to be speaking with you today uh, on the Product Management Leaders Podcast. To start out, could you share a little bit about yourself and your current role? Sure, Grant. Uh, first of all, I'm, uh, thank you for having me on the on this new podcast. It's exciting. You can hear I'm originally French. I have the particularity though after business school, I went to London. And then from there, I got by accident, I got uh, sent to Silicon Valley back uh, in 1991. So it was pretty early and it wasn't, you know, wasn't what most people of business school wanted to do. You know, Wall Street was more like top of mind at the time. So I got into tech software by accident and hmm. fell into the, you know, proverbial you know environment that made me just love it and all the way to where we are today very cool that's awesome i can imagine um you you saw the whole dot-com boom and bust and everything that's very cool <laughs> uh, so uh, actually before the i did see the dot-com i was actually in the dot-com i went through starting a company raising money burning it and all that stuff <laughs> but before that i was you know in the early 90s went through the, the PC boom, right? PC software boom. Mm. And then the first client server before the internet when you know, it was all about client server and, you know, see companies like Oracle and, and yeah. many others, you know, blooming. So felt like I've been around a lot of different cycles and it made it super interesting to be in that industry. And then when you take the big perspective and you still think you're still in the first inning or second inning of it, you know, when you take the broad impact of technology and software to the world, it's, it's pretty fun being, you know, right timing, being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So as the VP of product for PandaDoc, can you share a little bit about um, how your team is structured? Yes. Uh, so PandaDoc is fast growing like uh, many B2B SaaS companies and our structure and our organization is evolving rapidly, right? Uh, what it looked like a year and a half ago when I joined and what it is today is substantially different. What it's going to look like in six to 12 months, probably going to also evolve as we, we scale, right? We, we were about 25 people. When I started a year and a half ago, we were over 55 now. That's, you know, so we, we structured, we are structuring the organization, you know, differently. We're trying to structure it to, to accommodate our growth for, for the foreseeable future, which for us, is three to five quarters. You know, it's less, it's about a year, but not quite a year, depending when you are in the cycle. Today, I've structured the team around, you know, fundamentally five pillars. I've got the product management pillar, which is the the heart of the team. I've got a product marketing 
team that has been more recently integrated into product. We, we used to have that team in the marketing side. And last year in December, we made the decision to move it into product. We have the product design team that is integral to our product development process, which is also part of product. And then I've got two other team. One is around product operations, and that includes product analytics, which we also are building as we speak. Mm. We used to rely on a corporate function, and we realized we were in we were needing, you know, additional firepower. So we're building a dedicated product analytics team. And then finally, I'm. Uh, I just started a few months ago a international go go global team, where we are spearheading the global expansion plan for the company out of product. So it's an incubation type uh, of the project from within product. So that's the current setup. It probably will be somewhat different in six to twelve months. Sure. That's so interesting. Can you share a little bit more about uh, what the international expansion is looking like? We so Panadoc to date is only available in English for you know so we we derive a very large substantial you know part of our business out of the U.S. and the key English markets you know UK Australia Canada and of sure. course we are looking at how do we go broader. Um, not just European languages, but also Asian markets and South American markets over time. We are, Panadoc is, you know, so is really uh, our platform, our solution is, is in the heart of digital transformation for the SMB market, especially. So, you know, it's really a global opportunity, not just limited to, to, the, to the English-speaking market. So we decided that it was time for us to, we have enough, traction in our you know english markets that we we are able and willing to invest outside of them so this is part of our plan over the next years nice that's great to hear and um you mentioned that product marketing is now under the product org as well can you give some background as to why that decision was made and how it's working so far sure so product marketing was under marketing you know, for a few years and we had a disconnect between, we felt that we had a disconnect at the company level in terms of getting to market to customer, the actual value of what we built from a product organization. And we believed Mm -hmm. that, you know, integrated product marketing would, would make the, the, the communication between, you know, the internal building of the product and the delivery of the software to the actual uh, delivering the value to customers using it a bit smoother. I also believe, you know, so heuristics there were also like in most of my career, I, I managed, you know, product marketing as part of product because I believe on a holistic point of view. So that was part of it. And it's too early to tell how it's going, but it's been about six months, but we we built the team. We have uh, processes in places. We found really good um high-level processes on how to work with the revenue organization, you know, marketing in particular. So, you know, so far so good, but, you know, the jury is still out. In terms of uh, one observation, one tip was one of the drawbacks that we'd seen about having uh, product marketing inside the marketing organization is for us, marketing is under the chief revenue officer. And so Mm -hmm. their primary driver is, is MQLs. And product marketing is not, you know, the core of product marketing is not necessarily designed to to build, you know, pipeline and MQL. So we felt, you know, there was it was a bit at odds with, you know, the the vision and the mission of 
a highly functioning product marketing organization. Hmm. And did you have existing product marketers that moved um, into the product org or did you hire new people to fill that? We, we hired new people. We built a team from scratch. Got it. Yeah. And you also mentioned moving product analytics into the product org for you. Um, yes. Is that still too early to tell if that's helping or have you seen benefits from that already? Uh, we, we moved that more recently and it's the team is being built as we speak. So it's really early, but we, we all understand the, the need. So the, the need was simple, right? We have, we had a corporate function, business intelligence, uh, data analytics that was growing, but the given you know the size of our team, we were you know our requirements were growing super fast, and the <laughs> ability to deliver were kind of stable. So the gap was just growing faster. And given you know we're we fortunate enough that we we can invest and we have uh, so we decided you know it was appropriate to start a product analytics dedicated team. We have, and we completely take advantage, leverage, you know, the data infrastructure that the, the business corporate team is putting in place. So all of the, the data engineering, the data taxonomy, all of those things are centralized. And we're really looking mm. at just the analytical part of the, the team, which is really about, you know, driving insights. So that piece is the one that we're building, you know, specific to our product initiatives. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And... So what are some of the metrics and insights that you're tracking on a regular basis? So the, the, our primary you know, lagging in indicator is our NPS. So we, we've been tracking this for several years and we, you know, very regularly, regularly we, we look at it. But so as we probably know, NPS is not super actionable. So it's more of a lagging metric of you know sure. what's going on but we, we pay attention to it apart from that each each of the product teams has their own north star kind of metrics so our growth team is very focused on funnel metrics right typical conversion rates and activation rates and whatnot the rest of the product organization product team are more like into usage and you know behavior of of customers so there's not a, we have a set we have a set of dashboards and set of, of metrics that we you know we pay attention to. Never enough though. You know the the funny thing <laughs> is we all want to be data driven and or data informed at least. And you know we have a lot of data like everybody else, but sometimes we just don't have the time to uh, to check on the you know what does the data mean and what should we do about it and so forth. So we yeah. still still an area where we are growing and learning. Mm. Can you share about uh, your thoughts on product-led growth? Oh, I'd love to. That's a, <laughs> that is a really good topic because it's it's really funny. It's like I even saw like Gartner recently published, you know, the five myths of uh, PLG, and they have the hype cycle, and they put PLG at the top of the hype, you know, before the the slope uh, of disenchantment and whatnot. Yeah. So I I I don't get it. I don't buy their view. I, th I think it's very simple. You can keep it very simply. It's like I've seen, you know, and maybe it's because I've been there for a long time on, in, you know, in the software world. But so think back to the 90s and early 2000. Most people didn't have internet. Most people <laughs> didn't have, you know, computers. You would sell software. You better, better have like targeted list of who you'd go to and then you'd send people with a, with a bag, right? And they go, they called, you know, 
enterprise sales rep, they would go and yeah. knock on the doors of the big companies because you couldn't make that model efficient from a cash standpoint with SMBs, right? So it was like very much uh, enterprise software and, and the Oracle of the world pioneered this and made it, you know, super successful. IBM before Oracle and all these guys, right? The blue suit yeah. approach. With the internet came phase two in my mind, which is content marketing. So we went from a sales first, you know, sales rep first approach to, oh, there's something called the internet. Now I can put a lot of content for free on, on this thing called the website and I can have people learn about my product and learn about my services without having to send someone to knock on the door and get, you know. So that to me is the web 2.0 phase of content marketing, you know, that still most of us, you know, most companies leverage, right? It's like SEO, right. SEM technique, and but it's content. And what we also realized in the last 10 years is like with internet, I mean, technology is big, I mean, you know, bandwidth and whatnot becoming much more available. Like, hey, there's no better marketing than actually letting people play with your product. So instead of telling them about what the product does, just give them the product and start doing, you know, Dropbox was one of the first to, to be well-known around, you know, freemium but it's like freemium trails whatnot and so that's plg right it's like what, what i mean to me plg is about put a product if, especially for us and smb so maybe the enterprise market is different but for an smb type market or a mid-market product where the user is key there's nothing better than just get the user in the product to to do the marketing for you to do the sell for you right so i i'm a big fan of plg we believe in plg we are huge investment for us in PLG and not just in the sense of gross hack and viral loops and, and gross loop for this and that. We do those, but we think about the product itself, right? So back to the NPS for our target market, right? The ease of understanding of the product, the ease of the speed to getting to value for the customer is fundamental. It's all about user, you know, user experience and and so we're spending an inordinate amount of our resource on that type of work, which is not about adding features, but really about how do we just rethink the approach that customers can get value out of what we offer faster. Yeah, I think a lot of companies are probably wanting to take a PLG approach or are in the process of it. And what I've seen is a lot of companies start with some kind of onboarding as a way to kind of enter in if they haven't really done or thought about a, a PLG approach. Do you have any strategies or tips for product onboarding? We, you know, there's, again, depending on the segment where you, you're reaching, right, there's the, the very w well-documented, you know, superhuman approach, you know, type approach. And then you have a lot of in-product basic checklist, guided tour and all that stuff and everything in between. Uh, I, again, you know, we, we struggle with it. I don't know if we are the the best and we're trying to learn from a lot of the you know, more visible companies that have more visible PLG play, playbooks, you know, the, the the slack of the world, those, you know, the, the type form. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of really well-known examples. So we, we try to study what they do and, and learn from that. And to us, for me, it's all linked to activation. And the term mm. activation is, is overused, but onboarding needs to lead to something. And so one of our challenges is to define what is the actual activation metric that matters. And there's a ton of discussion on that. And that's not, this is more art than science today, because uh, typically the 
you know, the data is not going to easily tell you what is true activation. So for us, we have some basic metrics that are obvious, you know, sending a document, but that's, they're not true activation. So we're still learning. We're still searching for what is our North Star on the activation side, which correlates to the onboarding piece because you want the onboarding to drive to this activation as an outcome. Yeah, that's great. So as, as a VP of product, I think something that obviously makes your life a lot easier is when your manager, whether it's a CEO or chief product officer or whoever it is, depending on uh, the role and company size, understands product management and values it. What has that looked like for you over your career of working with people who, uh, like bosses who have understood or not understood product? Well, I mean, I spent most of my life with earlier stage companies and they, they, they were most of the time I was either one of the founder or I was one of the early uh, product guy where the, the mm. CEO was typically the product founder. And so what I had to learn about is more how do you become, you know, when you join a team that already exists where you were not the CEO founder, what you have mm-hmm. to learn is how do you protect the vision of the founder, but then make it accessible and, and operational for the, for the actual product team. And so that became, you know, what I specialized in, you know, is like, how do you work on that two dimension where the vision is with the founder and it's still the case at Panadoc where our founders, our CTO, my boss is really the owner of the product vision. Mm. And he thinks, you know, two and five years out and he has some principles that he believes in and he cares about. And so my job is to work with him to bring in, okay, what do we do next quarter, right? It's not about, okay, it, we we can all agree where two years out we're going to be and how, what do we do next quarter, next six months is, you know, where my, my role comes in as a VP of product. That's, you know, that's my experience so far. So I've never been in a company where product wasn't valued. Maybe by, by I ended up not being, so I don't have experience on what I would have done if it was the case. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's gold. That's a great insight to think about. Um, how do you take that big vision and, put it into action in some way, as you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so how do you think about quarterly or yearly planning? It's, it's really, um, I, I mean, quarterly planning is, is a really almost business normal rhythm. And um, the ceremony of, for us, we're using OKRs. Um, so sure. the OKRs is a tool that we use to, to help go through that planning phase. We are still learning, you know, how to make it work for us. So I, I can't say, you know, on the scale of one to 10, I'd say we probably a six or a seven or maybe an eight, depending on the quarter in terms of how we use the tool. But it's an yeah. important tool for us that we still need to make our own better. The planning is, you know, it's, it's interesting because quarterly is, is, is the freak, you know, we have on one side, we have our two weeks sprint thing, which is really comfortable for everyone in the, product engineering organization, right? We have very good rhythm around our two-week cycles. We have a rhythm around monthly update, which, which we do with you know, key, key leaders. On, on, we do a monthly type check-in and whatnot. And the quarterly mm-hmm. planning is the thing that we do to align with the rest of the organization because not the, the rest of the organization is not, not all of them are on two-week sprints and whatnot. Of course, sales is not. 
So we use that as a, for, I think, I think of it to be more of a alignment with cross-functionally more than a planning for us. You know, at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of our work from a product standpoint spans across quarters. So it's not like we do have yeah, goals right. for the quarter, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that slip from one quarter to the other and then things that take more than the quarter that take, you know, so the, the quality planning, I, I think of it as more of a business alignment and check in with the business side of the house and our CEO to make sure that we are on the right path, to, you know, as the strategy, you know, tweaks. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So for you as previously being a co-founder or CEO, um, you hear people talk about like the uh, product lead is like a mini CEO. Do you think that's true or do you think there are components that uh, it's different than yeah, being a CEO? I, I, ne- I never personally like that because it makes, <laughs> it, it makes us feel self-inflated in terms of our importance. I think of a, a, a really good product leader as a diplomat. Um, you really hmm. think about, you know, our job is, is, is to align a lot of different people towards a common goal. So our job is to really come up with the story, uh, which is our vision, and create a story around it, and then align and work through, collaborate with a lot of different, you know, teams from sales to engineering on how we get to achieving that vision. And so I don't see ourselves as mini CEOs. We do have, we do have power because we control up to a point, you know, roadmap and what gets to be built. And it's always, you know, when we have new hard orientation at PandaDoc or any other company, right? That's always the first question of people is, hey, how do you guys decide what we're going to build? And we're like, well, you know, there's the theory and there's the science and then there's the reality. And then each company is a little bit different, but that's really the power is the the perception that we make those very fundamental big decisions as to what gets to be built. But I, I don't think, you know, the... The CEO analog is is correct. I really think more of a you know diplomat. I think it's softer and it's more appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that does make a lot of sense, and especially when you think about um, like you can't just fire or hire anyone in the organization as well. <laughs> There's there are big pieces of the role that are missing. Um, yes, compared to a CEO. I think being a CEO and having been a product guy, I, I can tell you the pressure is very different, right? So I, I'm i very happy to being back to just being a product guy. <laughs> it's, it's you know, a very different set of pressure. Of course, there's sure. pressure, but it's just not the same. So, yeah. You know. Yeah, that makes sense. What What's one of the hardest product decisions you've had to make before? Oh, I was fearing that question. <laughs> Because there's, there's two ways I think about it. It's, it's some, sometimes it feels like, for me, I, I'm a really a product geek and I really have high empathy. You know, I think about our role is to have empathy for our customers and really mm. to, to want to deliver value to customers. And it's like, man, so every day, every single day, I have like, my God, you know, we have a customer request. I'm like, it makes sense. It's fucking obvious. Why aren't we doing it? It's a bug. It's actually not a feature. It should work that way. <laughs> We have to say no because we we just can't you know do it all. So I don't have. I think it's more like death by a thousand cuts more than there's one big thing. To me, it's like I, I feel like you know I bleed every day because it's like you take any product in any space and you, the more customer you have, the more input you're gonna get. 
and the more bad ideas you're going to get, but the more good ideas you're going to get. And man, when you see the good ideas, you're like, I wish I could do this. I could do this. I could do that. And, you know, that's really the, our job as a, as a leader is to say no. And it's really hard for me. It's really mm. hard. Yeah. Yeah, that is tough. How do you think about prioritization and trade-off? Like, how do you make those decisions? Well, we we delegate. You know, we've 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 tried to empower. I mean, it's 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 you know something that's really important as we grow is is how do you truly empower your teams so that mm. you can focus on where you can create asymmetrical value. And so, my first goal is to try to delegate as much of those decision, you know, to to others. So I don't have to have the burden of understanding all of the the pros and cons when I need to be involved. Um, I really think about, you know, where does it map to our strategic long-term value? So does it fit this to me? That's the first check, you know, is it in line with, we have this vision two, five years, who we want to be when we grow up, does it support that? And is it something that uh, allows us to continue our differentiation and our value proposition versus what we see our meet, you know, the, our overall market players, if you pass that thing, then it's really a, the trade-off comes from, you know, cost. It's like, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the expected return versus the cost and try to, to juggle what, what makes the most sense. We tend, I tend to have a partial, partial bias towards um, smaller things that are less grandiose from a strategy standpoint, but are very pragmatic and are short enough and defined well enough that, you know, we have a high probability of success of getting them built and deployed and adopted. So if between the two extremes, I, I personally gravitate my biases towards those, you know, more tangible thing. I, I, I learned, you know, from early days of, of startups, right. It's like what's important is to move and is to get things done and provided you kind of in, in the right direction, it's okay if it's not exactly where you, you know, you can always move. So that's a personal bias. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So if you would have to think about a day or a week, what's the pie chart of your time look like? What are maybe some big items you often spend your time on? Uh, people, I mean, it's 8% of my time is people. It's either one-on-ones or small groups, or it's recruiting right now. It's like I probably mm-hmm. interviewed two or three people a day. So we're hiring, we just, you know, so I hired, we, my team hired like 15 people last quarter. We're going to hire another, you know, 10, 15 people. We have like 30 open RX. So it's like <laughs> just interviewing, you know, talking. I think this is the, the, this is my role and aligning with one-on-one so, so that, you know, I can be helpful where they need help. I can give feedback sometimes where they don't want feedback, but I still give them feedback and, and then try to stay out of their way, you know, as much as I can so we can scale because, you know, I'm becoming a bottleneck to the organization. So I'm being mindful of that, of how do I not become the bottleneck and, and whatnot. So it's a combination of delegation and growing people and giving clear line of authority and responsibility. So it's a, you know, this is why I mentioned earlier that the org will continue to evolve because how do we enable us to scale? Because we want to be multi-product company from a single product company. We want to be global instead of just one market. And we have a lot of aspiration. How can we do that and not be in the bottleneck? It's 
that requires rethinking of the organization. Mm. Yeah. What are some of your strategies for working effectively with engineering teams? I've uh, so my first job in tech was with a company called Born, which back then was known to be a developer first type company. It was very engineering led company. It was definitely not sales led, and <laughs> a lot of you know I moved to the US, a French guy, and a lot of the engineers then were also Europeans, kind of thrown into the. Silicon Valley uh, world, and I got mm. to have a lot of friends that were, you know, engineers on the teams. And uh, from there, I learned, you know, they're people first. So you want to treat them as as people, <laughs> even though they might be more introvert than the marketing colleagues or the sales colleagues. They're, they're people. So people means trust and respect. It's also someone used that analogy recently in an interview. So I'll just copy, but it's like it's a little bit like. You know, if you have siblings, if you have brothers, how how you can be with brothers, right? It's like you, you should be able to have arguments and fights, but at the same time, you know, you're going to patch up very quickly and you're going to make sure that family is first, right? So that's the type of relationship that I think is healthy. We are especially lucky at PandaDog because our, my boss, Sergey, is also the, is a CTO, also oversees engineering. So we also have our bosses creates unity by default. It's not like, you know, engineering is here and product is there. So it's like really together. And so mm. we join at the hip. We have respect. We have mutual respect for each other's, you know, functions and roles. And it's healthy. We've had conf- I've had conflict, though, in my life, you know, previously with engineers. And, you know, you, you try to do your best to not make it personal, but it's, you know, that's, that it happens. Yeah, yeah, I think it's part of the job to some degree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you, if it is part of the job, I mean, we you know product goals are not always the line. You know, our goal is to get as as much value to customer as fast as possible. Engineering goal is to get you know that value, but also with level of stability, quality, and and you know technical debt that is acceptable for the business. And so we have to be mindful that those objectives are not always aligned. Yeah. Right. Do you have, you mentioned you're doing a lot of hiring. Um, so plug for PandaDoc if you're listening, go check them out. <laughs> yeah, um, plug. please, please do. Yeah, what are, what are a couple of your go-to uh, interview questions that you like to ask? I have a new one that I use always as my last question. And it's, you know, some smart guy, you know, published it on Twitter and I thought it was really, really smart and, and interesting and it's basically there's different ways to phrase it but it's kind of asking the person about you know what what is the one misconception your colleagues might have about you Hmm. and it's pretty hard questions to answer on the fly if you haven't thought about it and so it's been interesting it's been it's been very revealing in interview because you know i probably have used it about 20 times now I've not had one person who had had that question before. So <laughs> people have to think about what the question means and, and that's a good start. And, and so that's, that has been a, a good question. Huh. That's a, yeah. It's making me think now. <laughs> There's a um, talking about uh, recently Lenny Rustic published. So he's a new, one of these guys that has really a lot of really good, 
product management, product content out there on Twitter and he has a website committee and whatnot. He published an amazing, uh, that was three or four weeks ago, an amazing list of questions, you know, that you should use for, you know, interviewing PMs in particular and hmm. excellent article. I will send you the links. You can feature it in the, at some point or potentially you can interview yeah. Lenny directly. I think that was one of the best. I bookmarked it. I sent it to all my hiring people. I actually sh- shared it with HR. I think it was really well thought through a list of questions you should you can use for interviewing PMs in particular. It was really great. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. We can try to put it in the show notes. Awesome. Are there any other sources or areas that you go to learn or that you'd recommend others to check out if they're, let's say, a first-time VP or an aspiring PM leader? Well, there's, you have everything and, and more right, accessible to, to anyone. I, I tend to, I read a lot. I, I follow, you know, I've got a bunch of people I've curated on Twitter for a long time mm. that I get inspiration from. You know, I was yeah. one of the first person to subscribe to Ben Thompson, for example, and who I think has been, you know, really influential the last 10 years in how to think about product, product strategy, business strategy. So there's a lot of people out there who are brilliant, you know, some are VCs, some are, you know, so make your own curated list of people you feel have a high uh, resonance to, uh, to what you believe in and learn from them. You know, there's, there's so much resources out there. I do have a bunch of bookmarks. I rarely go back to them. I bookmark stuff and, you know, they're there. I know they're there, but it's like I kind of not even remember to go back. So I'm not a really good subject in terms of being super organized to to have a regular, you know, learning thing. But there are people like, you know, Lenny, I just mentioned, you know, I think, you know, I stumbled on him on Twitter. I think he talks about really smart stuff. I subscribe to his things and usually it's, you know, it good for the right. So there's, you know, I don't have any magic wand on that one. I think there's <laughs> so much out there, but there's also, it depends, you know, I think there's a lot of people who've been in the Googles of the world and big companies and they have a very, very um, disciplined approach to PM. My world has always been, you know, zero to a hundred, you know, zero to 10 or 10 to a hundred, you know, and mm-hmm. it's completely different, right? It's like processes and systems have a lot less relative weight. They're very important, but they're not as important as many other things, right? In the quest of product market fit. So right. I, I don't know. It depends where you are, what type of company. And if you're at Salesforce, you probably should listen from the guy from Google. If you're at, you know, <laughs> if you had startup with five people, probably I would not, you know, read too much what these guys do because it's not going to be material to you, your survival in the next, you know, year or two. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. Stage of company and even their kind of advice is a great point. I love, you know, in terms of resource, there's a team that is doing amazing work, especially with PLG and growth is Reforge. Many, mm-hmm. if not most of my PMs have, have gone through the the courses. Um, um, their content is really, really good. I think they're, you know, they're really top. I think, you know, I definitely think, you know, Brian and his team are doing an amazing job there. Yeah, that's cool that so much your team has gone through it. Yeah, and especially especially we don't we that's a rule that I have is we subsidize we pay half of it but we don't pay all of it so our PMs mm. pay half of the tuition which is not cheap it's a few thousand dollars a couple of thousand dollars sure. so they really have put their 
their money into the into this education piece. So it's it's usually very it seems like it's been really effective for us. So for someone at your level, I think people sometimes wonder how do people at your level get hired into their next job? Um, can you share a little bit about what that's looked like for you or for others you know? Yeah, I think, you know, the, at the end of the day, you know, the your network is 80 or 95% of it. So sure. your network, your history, your, you know, friends of friends that go from jobs to job, that's when real, really quality opportunities materialize. And some are unbelievable. And recruiters after that are basically, you know, exec recruiters, search guys are mm-hmm. important. But they, sure. they tend to work, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I've never been successful with with that. I never got a job that way. I always got my job from, you know, personal networking or or just serendipity. Yeah, yeah, that makes and sense. I'm, I'm not. You know, there's, there's. I don't think there's a, a special secret here. I think the what I've <laughs> realized though, as as we do a lot of hiring, is I had never thought about this until recently, like maybe a few years ago, like how the last the job you currently are or whatever you've done the last two years trumps everything else is like literally you know so some of the search we do we have you know hundreds of applicants like anybody else and you literally have only three seconds to make a decision as to and you basically scan the name the title and where they are today and you're like yes no and it's it's really fascinating how much you know People have very well-constructed LinkedIn's and resume, but they don't answer those things very clearly or they put a lot mm-hmm. of things, right? It's like you see the, the resume with expert at this, 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 and this and that, and you're like, okay, not what I'm <laughs> looking for. So, I mean, that's my experience. I would do something super radically simple about, you know, what I am and what I'm doing currently and just focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how your LinkedIn headline is structured right now, right? Yeah. A little product bit. led growth, VP product at PandaDoc. Very clear yeah. <laughs> what I you're mean, great at. What I, what it's actually, I don't even know if that's what I'm great at, but this is what I want to do now. So it's like I, I got to the point where I can at least articulate what I want to do, what I'm happy with. And mm. like I said, you know, I don't want to deal with being a CEO again. I don't want to have a quota. I don't want to have, there's a bunch of things I don't want to do. And I, lo- I, wa- I love to build product with, you know, a bunch of guys and deliver value to customers. So that's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Sounds like a, a good gig that many people listening probably want as well. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I think there's nothing wrong with it. To me, it's an amazing job. I'm, I'm like, we are in the creator community. I don't think of us as entrepreneur, but we are in this creator community and, Mm. I have zero artistic talent in terms of music or art. So to me, it's like, this is my craft, it's products, software product. And yeah. I love being a cre- creator in that space. I feel that that's an amazing blessing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's totally a, a valid form of uh, creation in a creative community. It is. So, so switching up a little bit, how do you explain to your family or to non tech people what you do for a living <laughs> uh, to this day i've been doing it for 25 30 years and i still don't do a good job with it it's like is this the tech, hardest question i've asked you 
<laughs> it, it's I don't think it's the hardest, but it's 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 really one that you know it's I suck at. I just don't not good at at what you do. And it's like, of course, my mom asks, "Is what does panda dog do?" And she is like, "No clue." And I try to explain, <laughs> and she, she says she makes me happy. She says, "Okay, I understand," but I know she doesn't understand, right? So. Um, <laughs> It's not just, you know, I think, you know, tech is still, you know, this is what, if you think about fundamentally, right, tech is still in the first inning. It's like, it's still this weird thing, you know, right? There's all of these memes on Twitter and other place, right, of what you think you do and what you actually do and all that type <laughs> yeah, of stuff. Right. I mean, it's it's so, in, in my mind, like, when you ask the question, it's like, I don't know, I mean, I mean what does this product guy do? I mean, it's hard to explain sometimes. Well, sure. I kind of work with designers and marketing people and this, we kind of decide what we want to build and then we work with engineering to kind of get it built. I mean, yeah, I'm, I don't know. Did you hear good answers to that question? I think what I've heard before that seemed good is using some sort of analogy. And usually it's related to like the industry or product that they're doing in some way. So, I mean, your diplomat analogy could could maybe work here. So the, the, the one analogy I've, I've used recently with my team when we were talking about uh, actually our QCRs, and I used the analogy of the restaurant. And I was telling them, you know, this is, there is the, what you serve to the dining room, and then there's, there's what you cook in the kitchen. And obviously there's not a one-to-one relationship between the two. There are things you might be cooking that might never come to the dining room and and think so you could think of you know uh, a product guy a little bit as a cook because we take a lot of ingredients and we work with a lot of different products and pieces to create something yeah yeah i think that works especially if you're like the master chef working over other chefs too <laughs> yeah yeah could be there you know i can i mean i'm a foodie so i can relate to that <laughs> nice so if you could solve any one PM problem, I give you a magic wand, what would that be? Uh, I'd love, to me, it's like this, you know, the, the topic of scaling and the topic of being able to do more with less is always mm. the one that I, I, is the most, uh, which, which most critical is like how we get higher, much more value for the business, you know, so it's this notion of scaling. It's like, how do we handle? And it's, it's the trade-off between how do you delegate so that you can scale, yet you maintain an organization integrity so you don't end up with a bunch of silos and a bunch of people doing things in a vacuum of a common story. That's a tricky one. And mm. I, I, I wish, you know, there was magic wand to, to help make it, you know, easier to get the absolutely right people in each place which you never get you always have some people that are not quite in the right place and whatnot so it's like but how do you create that magic of everybody understands the long term and everybody's in the right place so that you can do a ton more than you you are limited based on you know the realities of execution today that would allow us to say yes to a a lot more of the good ideas from customer. That would allow us to say yes to a lot of the good ideas from our CEO and our sales leaders and marketing leaders and whatnot. And those Mm -hmm. are, you know, what you strive for is how do we create more that has impact on the business and for, which is typically, you know, driving customer usage. Yeah. 
if you had one of those magic wand, I would you know, be happy to take it. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to mail it to you if I had it. Um, although I might make a duplicate first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any advice for uh, first-time PM leaders? It's tough. The transition from a PM IC to a PM leader is tough. It takes time and it doesn't happen overnight. And you have to be humble. You have to stumble. And but you have to keep faith in yourself. And so keeping faith in yourself is truly having a North Star around customer value. I think this this is really, but it's not easy at first, right? There's going to be, you don't know, right? You're going to be micromanaging the PMs on your team. You're going to make all of the mistakes we've all made. And so it takes <laughs> a bit of time. It's just, you know, be, be a little bit patient and be gentle with yourself. I think it's it's like sometimes, you know, PMs tend to have, you know, type A person. I mean, at least in my around me, a lot of PMs that become leaders tend to have type A personality. They're they're impatient. They're they want big success fast. And maybe sometime, you know, in some of this transition phase from one, because being a PM is not easy when you come from doing something else before or nothing, right? But I think the the transition from a contributor to a true PM leader is 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 challenging. Hmm. Because you feel like you're losing, you know, the control of things, and it's like, okay, what am I supposed to do all day long? It's not easy. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. No, I would say just be patient and be gentle on yourself. Yeah, that's uh, great advice. So, well, yeah, thank, thank you, Grant. I'm, I don't know if uh, you know I had good answers to all of your good questions, but it was fun to go through them anyway. Yeah, no, you had great answers. I think uh, listeners are going to really enjoy this. So thanks so much for coming on today, Bernard. Sounds good. Take care and uh, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Yeah, you as well. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. And thanks to our sponsor, Vox Implant, as well. If you're looking into how to improve your communication and customer engagement, check them out. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and tell your friends so that others can find it more easily. Have a great day and feel free to reach out to me, Grant Duncan, if you have any questions you want asked in our next episode.